I think raising my children abroad was the best decision I, I made for them. My only regret is that they weren't able to grow up um, immediate family or extended immediate uncles, cousins, all of that, because I had that experience where I grew up with my cousins, like we were siblings. So as a nuclear family, I think it it forced us to be much closer, but I wish that they also had those links as well, where they feel like their cousins have a really good understanding of what they're going through or that they have inside jokes, things that they lived through together or memories that they, they could have had together. Hey everyone, welcome to Flourish in the Foreign, the award-winning podcast that celebrates, elevates, and affirms the voices and stories of Black women living and thriving abroad while exploring living abroad as a pathway to wellness. I'm your host, Christine Job, a Black American and Trinidadian woman based currently in Valencia, Spain. I am not only an award-winning podcaster, but I am a business strategist. And as a business strategist, I help Black women and women of color leverage their talents, their brilliance, their expertise into developing viable, sustainable, and impactful businesses. Businesses in which they bet on themselves, they bet on their own dreams, and turn into assets for their own lives. These businesses are often used to then pursue thriving lives abroad, I am very proud of the clients I've had the opportunity to work with this year, whether it be my business strategy clients or my Build a Business Abroad group coaching participants. If you are like, hey, what's that all about? I want to learn more about that. You can definitely learn more about me, my endeavors. Get the Build a Business Abroad guide at christinejob.com. Now, I do have the Moving Abroad with Intention course, which now has a self-study version and also a live version. The self-study, you can join anytime. You can do the course anytime. The live version will only be offered sporadically, to be honest. And currently, it is on offer right now. So if you're looking for some help about getting clear and confident and you want to take this next step abroad and do so with intention because you're not just trying to go abroad, but you're trying to flourish, you're trying to sustain, you're trying to move abroad with some longevity, I highly recommend you join me in the Move Abroad with Intention course. But there'll be more details about that course at the end of this episode. Today's episode is all about motherhood abroad. Yes, motherhood. For those of you that are mothers, are thinking about becoming a mother, we're just interested in motherhood, especially black motherhood in general. This is the episode in which I've compiled all of the insights and the reflections of my past podcast guests who are mothers and are experiencing motherhood abroad. And they get to share that little window into their world. 
You know, just like blackness is not monolithic, just like womanhood is not monolithic, motherhood is not monolithic. But something that I've found to be kind of a unifying factor is that I think all of the guests I've interviewed who are mothers have decided that motherhood isn't a constraint or restriction to moving abroad, to living abroad. They have made living abroad an aspect, a factor in their mothering, but it's not a constraint. But motherhood in itself is not a restriction to them traveling into to moving. And I just want to say that because I think sometimes people believe that it 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 can be or that it should be. And um, this this compilation is going to let you know that uh, it ain't. <laughs> It ain't, and there's so many beautiful ways to experience motherhood abroad. And I'm really excited for you all to, to listen to this episode. So I will allow the amazing mothers of Flourish LaForn tell you all about it. In season one, episode four, Adelia of Picky Girl Travels, shout out to Adelia, shares her story of navigating motherhood abroad when she decided to move from Houston to Honduras and brought her then teenage daughter with her. She initially had no interest in coming abroad. My initial plan was to wait until she had graduated high school. And a big thing that had changed for me personally was that I just was no longer putting up with things that did not serve me. If something was making me unhappy, I no longer would say, well, just stick it out until blah, blah, blah. When I had decided that I would pursue teaching in another country, I made the offer to her because her father and I shared custody. And she was like, thanks, but no thanks. I will stay here. She eventually changed her mind. I was like, think of it as sort of your own study abroad in high school. You don't have to move out of the U.S. for the rest of your life. You can try this for a year. If you like it, you can stay with me. If you don't, you can come back and stay with your dad. And so she had a ball. She had a blast from a a parent school perspective. She got the kind of attention from her teachers that would have never been possible at the high school that she attended before. You couldn't not do your work. There weren't 30 kids in the classroom to hide from the teacher anymore. And she also had teachers who did really creative things. She took classes she would not have taken in the States. She took sociology and psychology. She had a cool little social circle. They were always going somewhere, doing something, having a get together, having a dinner party. So for her, it was a very cool experience and actually kind of ended up shaping what she chose to major in at university because she already had an interest in agriculture. And one of her friends there, their parent worked for USAID and worked with local farmers and sustainable farming and that sort of thing. And she developed an interest in that. Really, the only negative she had was I had hoped she would get her Spanish credit. But what I didn't understand about the school being so small was that 
they don't have schedules like you do in the States. Like each student has different classes because there are only seven of them in the grade. They all go to the same classes together. So when they would go to Spanish class, well, these are kids who have been taking Spanish forever. She had never taken Spanish. So she ended up in Spanish as a second language instead of Spanish class. But she ultimately did still get her Spanish credit. So it worked out. For her, it was a good experience and she contemplated staying on because my initial contract was for two years and she contemplated staying, but she really had her heart set on raising a pig to show at the county fair. And so she decided to go back to Texas so she could do that. In season one, episode two, I spoke with Deanna in Hong Kong. And she was really transparent, not only about how she had to adjust to her life in Hong Kong, but also with her experience of being a mother abroad. I don't think I really felt settled until the second year. And I had heard that a lot from people moving to Hong Kong, because Hong Kong's a really transient city. People come, people go a lot. And I had heard from a lot of people that you're not going to feel settled or like you belong here until two years like the loneliness won't pass until two years in and i'm like oh (laughs) no what that's crazy two years is a really long time and sure enough yeah two years it took me to really get my bearings feel like i'm a part of something make really good friends and i'm a like really extroverted social person so that loneliness hit really really hard And it was hard to talk about with my family because, you know, I had been so gung-ho about coming, even though I didn't know what I was in for. But it was just like, I feel so alone here. How do I tell them, like, I'm not doing well? And, like, the first three months, I had no job. And because of our student loans, because (laughs) America, we could not afford to live on one income. Even though Dave was making more money here, I needed to get a job. And I was doing freelance graphic design for like three months and applying everywhere. But also they don't really do daycare here. They Everyone has a nanny. Like it's called a a domestic helper that lives with you. And so I couldn't interview for jobs because I had no one to care for my child. And I couldn't really hire a nanny or anything because I couldn't afford one because I have no job. And I need to get a job to do that. So it was it was a really stressful time and so we finally got a helper maybe after the first month or two and she's amazing she's she still lives with us her name is mary and um so she would watch start to watch aria while i would try to go for job interviews but no one was hiring me because i was very american but to the point where like there were certain things like how to set up their resume for here how to format it even what size it needs to be or what to say was it was foreign to me no pun intended, but it was it was foreign to me. I didn't know how, if and not for lack of trying. And so I just wasn't getting job offers. I was getting a bunch of freelance stuff, but not a lot of job offers. And so I, there was a point where my husband was like, look, either we find a job for you in the next month or we have to probably go back home because we can't afford it. And so at that point, I was also freelancing for that music learning center that I had visited the first week that we had gotten there. Um, just doing some marketing stuff. And I was like, hey, do you guys have a permanent position open or anything? Are you hiring? And the the owner was like, actually, yeah, we're opening a new center and we're looking for someone to do marketing. And so I was like, oh, shoot. Yeah, me right there. And so that week I interviewed with them just to have a conversation of what that would look like. 
and they hired me and then I negotiated the salary and yeah and I I just I prayed on it and I prayed on it and I prayed on it and I was like look God I I can't have a low salary here because well relatively low I just knew how much we needed to survive and so that's what I prayed on and asked for and when I went into the interview that's how much I asked for to be paid and they were like no we can't afford that so no then I told them like okay well just come up with some kind of creative compensation and you know I'm sure you guys can figure it out and by lunchtime they're like okay never mind yeah we'll just give you that salary it's fine so I ended up we had a beautiful apartment that you know we could just barely afford we had an amazing helper to live with us and take care of our daughter and then I got a job that I really liked and because it was a learning center my daughter could also go to work with me on some days and she got to take free classes there so it really just for all those things that really worked out for us I still didn't quite feel settled there until maybe two years in I think the job was really hard and just wasn't what I thought it was going to be. I just didn't know how to like keep up with friendships very well because, you know, it's, it's culturally, it's different. Right. And so like, I think back home, all my friends were mostly from college. And so we had kind of our routine. You go over, you just hang out or whatever, but here, like the flats are all really small. And so people don't really hang out at the house like that. Like not really. And, you know, they're going out to bars or clubs or whatever. And I just, that wasn't where I was at. And so I just didn't know how to maintain friendships, really, or how to, like, ask someone to go out or whatever. And so I was just, I was lonely for the first two years. I think getting new friends, leaving that old job for something different, still doing design, making new friends. And then I think after I had my second kid, that's, I think that's when I really started to feel like, okay this is my home now. Like, this is where we live. And I think that's also around the time when our visa was running out and we were talking about, do we reapply? Do we want to stay? Do we want to renew our visas? My daughter started school. And so I had mom friends that were around her age and like started going to birthday parties and stuff for them. I felt like part, I think, yeah, I think when I felt part of community, that's when I really started to feel like, okay, this is where I, where we should live. This is home now. And I think the same for my husband too. Like when he started getting into community with the dads and he found other black dads in Hong Kong, it, it, I think something really shifted for both of us kind of simultaneously. We're like, yeah, this is, this is our home now. I mean, plus I got pregnant and it was like, oh, well, we can't move on pregnant because I'm not doing that. And, you know, my daughter's going to an international school where she's learning another language from the age of five, which is amazing for her. And, you know, and now even with being working from home and having just homeschooling, she has online classes right now and it's full curriculum every single day and it's tedious and it's so much freaking work. But I am also really grateful that her teacher is available all day, checking the work, working with the students, having meetups for the kids so they all can see each other. And I just, I just see so much potential for our lives here. And I've just grown so much in the four years that I've been here. So for moms, especially if you have kids, you don't have to use that as your reason of why you can't go. I left the States with our daughter before she turned two. Like they're, they will be okay. They grow and thrive also in that experience because they don't know anything better. And so you're setting them up to already know that there is so much more out there than where they were born. 
And so that's just going to be amazing for you. Again, it's going to be hard. It's so worth it. I would not ever change the fact that I moved to Hong Kong, like ever. In season one, episode nine, Barbara shared what it was like taking her two youngest children abroad to Jordan, how they settled in, the challenges they had, and how she felt the move impacted them. They're now 14 and 12. They've had an amazing experience here. I'm excited. I I wanted them to have this experience of living abroad, of seeing the differences in cultures and communities and how people interact um, in ways that are similar and different from the United States. And it was everything that I hoped for and more. They love Jordan. Jordan is very kid-friendly, family-oriented. I let them go hiking through the cliffs of Petra up to the Indiana Jones spot where you can look out and see the treasury building. I let them do that by themselves. And it was a little bit heart-stopping, but I wanted them to have that confidence-building experience of exploring the ruins and and working together to pull each other up over the cliffs. And, and there were other tourists around them that helped along the way. And it was just an amazing experience. They've made local friends and they've made friends from all over the world. That's important for them to understand that there are good people and people who share your values and people you would gladly call friends from lots of different backgrounds. And that's exactly what they did. And I love that they had that experience. My older son, the 14-year-old, attended King's Academy. My younger son actually attended a Jordanian school. And most of his day was in Arabic. That was a challenge, but they did give him a translator and a tutor. And he actually did very well, in spite of the fact that it was a local school. Expats tend to gravitate towards private schools here in Jordan. And you would expect to pay pretty much what you would pay in the United States, somewhere between eight and $12,000 a year. There are a number of independent schools here that cater to the expat community and to Jordanians that want that Western international school experience. Jordanian schools are going to be entirely in Arabic. If you're moving to Jordan and you're not an Arabic speaker, that really is an option for you. My younger son's school had a lot of English spoken and English speaking teachers, but it was still heavily in Arabic. A student might ask a question in English, the teacher would respond in English, but the subsequent discussion about the concepts or the context of whatever the question was would be in Arabic. So expats will probably look for independent schools, private schools, or religious schools that meet those needs for their children. I think the impact has been similar to the impact of being exposed to international children in our family's daycare had on me. I think that's been the impact on them. They now have friends from Indonesia and Europe and other parts of the Middle East that they want to go visit. And as they've talked about college, there have been conversations about going to college in Europe, where some of their friends are headed off to college here from the high school. It's broadened the conversation about what's possible for them in terms of education and in terms of travel. It's also made them sensitive. My 12-year-old, his two close friends that he's made here, one is Jordanian and one is Chinese. What he's learned is while we're 
acutely aware of comments that we don't want made about our ethnicity. He's also become aware of things that are sensitive to other cultures, meaning every culture has its sensitivities. Everyone has boundaries around what's acceptable and not acceptable. And it's heightened his awareness that our experience is not just about us. It's a collective experience about our humanity and the humanity of others and needing to be sensitive and inclusive and focus more on the things we have in common, what the intersectionality of our commonality is and how that helps us be friends or colleagues or build and work together in a positive way and how to check privilege and how to check offense when someone says something that isn't appropriate or whether they're talking to you or they're talking to a friend of yours from another culture, feeling confident enough to say, that's not going to work. Yeah, we don't do that here. I've watched that growth in them, and I love that growth in them. In season one, episode 12, Jackie shared her experience being a single mother, slow matting around the world. I have a daughter now. She is almost two years old. Her name is Ruth. But she is actually my second daughter. My first daughter, who I also traveled the world with, unfortunately, she passed away when she was seven. Most people say like, well, how did, were you able to like carry on? How did you continue your life? And I say, because one thing that I learned from my first daughter's death is that life is to be lived. We had the most amazing seven years of living together, exploring Egypt, exploring Nigeria, exploring Indonesia, that it feels like a lifetime of memories in my heart and in my soul. I know that for whatever reason, her time on this earth was short, but she had such an amazing time. And I'm so grateful. And every day I wake up in the morning and one of the first things I write in my journal is that I'm thankful for her life. I'm thankful for the time that we got to spend together. And I'm so thankful that she was here And that also makes me appreciate motherhood this time around so much more. I mean, even on my worst days with Ruth, when she is acting a hot mess, when we are in the midst of potty training and she is pooping and peeing all over the floor, I am thankful that she is here. I'm thankful for this time. I'm thankful that I know enough about myself that I know the type of environment that I need to be in to be the best mother possible. And I know the type of life that I want for her because I know... Her time on this earth is not promised, it's not guaranteed, so I want each moment for her to be powerful and memorable. In season one, episode 20, Jesse discussed the differences between French and American culture with regards to childcare. She also discussed incorporating Black American culture and affirming her daughter's Black American heritage in France. Just having a baby in France, it was very interesting learning from French people just even have a way of doing things and a a way of getting the children to sleep at night and just a way of doing everything. It was funny. I had read Bringing Up Baby, which was written by an American author. And I was reading, I was like, okay, okay, wow. But my husband read it. He was like, it's obvious. It's so obvious. Of course, if your kid's throwing a tantrum, you just walk away. You don't try to reason with the child. And then the child will just realize and then like follow you. I've been really happy with the French childcare system and the creches. Creche is their daycares and stuff before the kid can go to school. My kid actually started 
school, she started Matanel, which some people call it preschool, but what I see, what they're learning, it's the same thing that we learn in kindergarten in the US. And so I was like, okay, I really think it's just kindergarten. <laughs> but they start at the age of three here in France. It's quite young. And what a lot of French people love about it is that you want your kid to eat at school in the canteen, in the cafeteria, because they get to discover lots of different kinds of food and build out their palates. So in France, they're into food. They're into gastronomy. And I was looking at my kid's menu. They just sent it home with her yesterday. And I was looking through it and I was like, okay, they're going to have mushroom crepes. And yesterday they had white fish with thyme and lemon and like spinach with cream. It's truly a gastronomic experience, which is just really funny. When I think about school lunches back in Indiana, I'm like, what? Like, pizza. It's I think it's just really cool. It's a time for them to explore foods, but they're learning how to be a proper functioning member of French society in the terms of manners and stuff like that. They teach their kids from a very young age, you always say hello to someone, you always kiss, kiss your family, and how to say your pleases, your thank yous. But yeah, I would say a, lo a lot of the younger learning is a lot based in manners. I've FaceTimed with my parents since she was born, maybe, if not every day, every other day. I really think it's important that she knows who her family is, where she comes from. She knows that she's black. She says it all the time. I feel like that's been my job for her like very young formative years to be that person to make sure she knows who she is, that she is Black, and what that means. And if COVID weren't a thing, I would have her with my family in Memphis. She has a little cousin that's the same age as her, and we would just be hanging out with them. But since we can't be with them, in the meantime, we have some books over here that we read at night, one especially that talks about Black hair, and there's a show she loves so much on Netflix called like Motown Magic. And it's absolutely just a part of our everyday life. And if I notice she says something like, oh, I want my hair to be this way. Or if she says something where I'm kind of like, it's questionable, then I feel like I need to make sure that we get her back on track. But honestly, for the most part, I think just our everyday life of just making sure she's connected to her Black side of the family, her Black culture, her English language. In season one, episode 15, Nubia shared not only her family's response to her deciding to move abroad, but also how that decision impacted her children. The only people I cared about were my children. And I asked them if they wanted to come. I was like, hey, this could be a long vacation. You can still go to school, just online. I was excited to just share that. They showed no interest. My daughter actually was just like, well, if you move to London, I'll think about it. I'm just like, I, you don't got London money. I felt like I had to do this for me. Before I left, there were a lot of things that were aligned. But what I failed to mention is there were a lot of things within myself that I needed healing from. I was pre-diabetic. I was what they would call clinically obese, even though I was carrying my weight well or from the outside looking in, it looked well. But I felt like crap physically. I was pre-diabetic and it runs in my family type 2 diabetes, typically after the age of 35. And here I was, 37, 38 
and I was overweight. I was depressed because I had lost my job and I just felt like, why is this happening to me? I was angry at the world. Like what the, what the blip? I just felt like as you feel everything's working in your favor, Hickle, somebody always wanted to take it away from you. And I'm not going to get political and everything else, but we know what I'm talking about. There's never a chance. It always feels like it's close, but yet far away. And they're always just dangling it in front of your face. Like, here you go. Oh, by the way, nope, sorry, can't give it to you. And I just felt angry about it all. I was starting to feel resentful that I was a single mom for all these years and not really having a chance to do the things that I probably wanted to do or could do in my 20s. But it was my choice to have children. I had to deal with that. There was just a lot going on. And I was starting to feel just boxed in. I went to see a psychic, actually. And it was my first time seeing a psychic. And I was recommended to her by two people who didn't know each other. This is what I mean about alignment. Again, talking to Frances and she's like, I don't know if you believe in, you know, psychic abilities and all this kind of stuff, but there's this woman I go see, blah, blah, blah. She gives me the woman's name and I'm at the barber and I'm talking to my barber and I'm like, Hey, have you ever seen a psychic before? She was like, hell yeah. She was like, I go see this woman. This is her number. This is her name. And long and behold, it was the same person. To me, that was alignment. I'm like, heck, two people who don't even know each other told me about this woman. She must be good. I set my appointment and I went to go speak to her. And when I tell you this woman read me for filth, and I say that only because she was able to tap into everything that I needed at that time. And she was just like, you're not supposed to be here. And I'm thinking to myself, what do you mean? Am I supposed to be dead? She's like, no, 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 no. You're a nomad. You have a nomadic spirit and no wonder you feel the way you do because you're feeling caged. You need to be let loose to spread your wings and and gallivant around this world as you see fit. She was like, it's been a part of you all your life, but you're just now really tapping into its true ability. And she's like, you're going to be known around the world globally. I'm like, oh, am I going to be the new Oprah? This is all ego talking because I'm just taking it all in. And she's telling me that I'm going to leave a legacy and that I'm going to do all these wonderful things, but I need to stop doubting myself, that I need to take the chances and the risk on myself because I'm worth it. In that session, I was crying like a baby because there were so many things that she had said. She's like, yeah, you need to work through a lot of this trauma that you're holding on to and release the anger and everything. I was at a crossroads. I was like, I can't keep holding myself back. I got to do it. And that's when I decided the one-way ticket thing was it. In season two, episode nine, Lisa discussed her decision to leave China and repatriate back to the U.S. with her daughter. I was always going to return to the States, particularly after having my daughter. The when exactly and the how exactly was not always very clear. I did communicate to my daughter's father and to our attorneys that my contract was up by a certain time and that I would be moving back to the States. Now, what I had the option to to renew my contract or to go elsewhere, but I, I felt that that was 
we would probably come back here, if not permanently, then as a kind of interim before going off somewhere else. And that was largely because she was at an age, she was, I think, three and a half when we moved back to the States, where she needed to, and I intuited and felt that she needed to be with family, to be with her grandparents and her cousins. So we came home. She had already visited here many times, so it wasn't a foreign place to her. So we moved back. It was hard. It was 2016 in the summer. I had a few months left of of Obama. I was very excited about that. (laughs) And then I anticipated a different outcome with the (laughs) election. I was still kind of like in this daze of like letting the dust settle of being here and kind of adjusting to being able to understand conversations. You know, when you're on the subway or in somewhere and people are like talking in their phones on speaker, like they're on the real housewives or somewhere and stuff. And just being able, just being jarred by that or, or overhearing conversations that you can actually understand and realizing, Oh my gosh, like that's so private. Why are you having that conversation in the middle of target? I was glad in a way that I could stop. I could speak more English or I could speak more Chinese rather because my daughter at the time was fairly bilingual and to support her and her mother tongue, I was discouraged from speaking other languages other than, you know, English. And so it was nice to finally be here and to know that she had that language support from others so I could speak whatever I wanted. It was hard coming back. I mean, the United States has a lot of issues, has not unique to United States. I mean, because colonialism, slavery, oppression is global. Okay. So we cannot get that twisted. It's not just an American problem. It's a global problem. And it's one that is, cannot just be kind of siloed to a period of time. It's ongoing. And I saw it with fresh eyes. Um, It was so dehumanizing. It was just, that's, I think that's kind of what I, what I felt being back here. Like it was a culture of dehumanization. I don't know. It was, it was quite challenging. I didn't want to drive. A lot of the experiences and feelings I felt after 9-11, like that subtle depression Kind of, I could see that happening um, when I, while I was here. Fortunately, because I could recognize it, I was able to avert it. But nonetheless, there was just cause to be sad and to be frustrated and to want to like get my passport out and go back, <laughs> go back abroad as soon as I could. But I stayed. As many of you already know, but those of you that are new, welcome. Flourish in the Foreign is a labor of love, but labor nonetheless. It is an award-winning podcast, but it is an indie podcast. There's no studio backing this podcast up. It is a solo podcast. That means 
There ain't nobody else doing this work except for me. So if you love this podcast to tell us the stories of Black women who are living and thriving abroad, please consider supporting this podcast. You can do so by going to buymeacoffee.com slash flourish foreign and buy me a coffee. Thank you very much. You could also take a peek at the wish list. If you're interested at all at producing a podcast, take a look at my wish list. That's some of the stuff that you may need when you become a little bit more advanced podcaster. That's a really good look at the budget of how much it costs to produce a podcast like Flourish in the Foreign. Anything that you contribute, honestly, is just greatly appreciated. I do appreciate you all so much. Now, make sure that you're subscribed to the podcast. It really is important to be physically or virtually subscribe to the podcast. Also, please make sure that you have rated the podcast five stars. You have left a review telling everyone in the world, and me especially, why you like Flourish in the Foreign. It's so important for discoverability. It's so important for visibility. And also, it just makes my heart all warm and fuzzy. So thank you so much for doing that. And then, of course, please support the podcast by sharing the podcast. Don't gatekeep Flourish in the Foreign. Don't do that. Other people deserve to know about Flourish in the Foreign. Be generous and give the gift of Flourish in the Foreign. You know, it's given you so much. Give, give to other people. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> All right. Thank you all so much for supporting the podcast. I really do appreciate it. In season two, episode five, Candace shared her experience moving abroad with a special needs child. I think one of the things that gave me the courage to leave with my daughter is because I was not that reliant on a lot of the services in the U.S. to begin with. But as far as like the logistics of moving with her, I was already homeschooling her. That's one. Traveling with her can be challenging. And and I guess just the semantics of just traveling with someone with special needs. I think the good thing is that airlines really do provide really great service for people who, who have disabilities, who have special challenges. So just making sure that when we booked our tickets, I made sure that the airlines were aware of those things. And so I can really say the airlines always really provided really excellent service with that from wheelchair service. And my daughter is mobile. She can walk. But in the airports, that can sometimes be challenging, especially if you have to walk from one terminal to another terminal. It's very long. The airlines really help out a lot with that. I normally fly um, at nighttime when she's sleeping, that that makes it a lot easier too. And then I do uh, utilize natural herbs and I carry those with me in my bag to kind of keep her calm and things like that. I think for me, since I've exposed my daughter to so many different cultures over her life, she really ebbs and flows through different cultures very easily. um, And she speaks multiple languages. It, It wasn't really too difficult. My main concerns when it came to relocating and finding an apartment. It really had to be an apartment that had an elevator, making sure that there were certain amenities in the neighborhoods so that, you know, she could kind of maneuver and get around and have 
at least a little bit of autonomy when it came to living her life. Facebook has been a really great resource for me. I can easily connect with other moms and other people who have children with special needs. And that's usually what I have done. I'll just put a request out there. Hey, are there any other moms in the area who have children with special needs or special life challenges? Would you all like to meet up? What are the resources? And I've really been able to find that usually. Now here in Istanbul, since I consider this my home now, I find myself in a place of being the connector or the event organizer. I am putting together some things for people, teens and young adults with special life challenges and and disabilities here, just because I feel like that's in general a neglected part of the population. And so when it comes to socialization, which has been really tough for all of us during COVID and and what we're all dealing with, even more so with people who are autistic, have cerebral palsy, they've had their schedules interrupted. I'm actually putting together some activities, but usually some of the things that I do uh, in general to just prepare my daughter for international travel and to move is we just start, and especially with autism, because you have to prepare them in advance and just talk about it multiple times where you're getting ready to make a tremendous change. I'll start telling her about it in advance. We'll start looking at videos. We'll start uh, experimenting with the foods. We'll start talking about the culture. We'll go on YouTube and look at the videos. And that's how I start mentally preparing my daughter for the change. And that way when we actually get there, she's okay with it and she's more acclimated because like I said, changing schedules, changing environments, any sort of change at all is very challenging for people with autism. But I, I hope that I can serve as an example of not limiting yourself and your international experience simply because you have a child with special needs. Because I know a lot of a lot of people are scared. They don't even want to leave their city because they have uh, a child with uh, special life challenges. Just thinking you know, now that you asked the question and I'm thinking about the different challenges that sometimes we have, some of the challenges we do have, especially in Europe, as you likely know, a lot of the buildings are old. And a lot of times when we go places, the bathrooms are either upstairs or downstairs. <laughs> and I find that a lot of buildings and businesses are not compliant for people with special needs, not the way that they legally have to be compliant in the States. That can sometimes be challenging. And we had one situation where my daughter almost fell because of how the stairs were. What she and I have started doing now, especially here at Istanbul, we started making a list. We have a running list of cafes and restaurants and really cool places that are friendly as far as the layout of the restaurant cafe is concerned. That is very friendly for people who might have impediments walking or they may be in wheelchairs. I think the other challenge sometimes we have are just mindset because for a lot of people around the world, they don't really bring their family members who have disabilities out of the house. 
And for some people, there are a lot of stigma uh, surrounding having special needs or having a child or family member that has special needs or disability. And they see me allowing my daughter to live out loud and in living color. And they're just perplexed. I oftentimes get comments like, wow, I really admire how you just let her be herself because my daughter uh, has a lot of confidence. She has a really big personality. She's a total sweetheart, but she has a really big personality. And anybody who's seen pictures of her on Instagram, they know that she loves like Japanese anime and she loves dressing in the Hirajuku uh, style or the, the anime fashion. She loves that. So I allow her to express herself in that way. And just on top of us usually being different for the environment by being black, which you're going to get stared at anyways in this environment, it's doubly so because she dresses that way and she has a disability. But luckily for her, her confidence is so high. It's never shaken. And she really loves how people always want to come up and take pictures with her, which is funny. Uh, And children absolutely love her because I think they think she's big old baby doll or something like a living baby doll. They love to run up to her and take pictures with her because she dresses very colorfully and she's always smiling and waving at the children. But I think mindset wise, as far as what she adds to the environment, wherever we are internationally, is just, I think she adds the possibility of what can be because a lot of people are surprised at her intellect. They're surprised that she has an opinion on what happens in the world. And they're surprised at how knowledgeable she is about what is going on in the world as well as how quickly she's able to grasp languages and just kind of blend into cultures. I I think it's quite interesting. And my parenting journey is obviously unique in that sense. But again, it's something that I don't consider to be an impediment to my being a global citizen and us experiencing the world together. I asked Candace to describe to me what is world schooling and why she decided to world school her daughter as opposed to going the more traditional enroll your child into local school route. World schooling is essentially it's homeschooling, but just with the global international um, component in there. I have homeschooled my daughter for many, many years. I actually pulled her out of the public school system in the States just because she wasn't getting what she really needed. And I got sick and tired of the IEP meetings and people telling me what they could and could not afford for my daughter. So I pulled her out of school when they told me that they could not afford for her to have a one-on-one aid when she was entering middle school. And I was just like, okay, she's, I know she's going to likely get hurt or injured. And just so that I don't end up in jail somewhere, I was like, let me just pull her out. And before that, I had actually pulled her out for a short period of time. But at that point, I pulled her out completely. And we started doing online curriculum. When you homeschool, you do have to notify your local school district of your intent to homeschool your child because, of course, most places have 
and the states have truancy laws where if you don't take your child to school, you could be facing some sort of criminal charges. Once we got all of the legalities out of the way, I used a combination of different things to homeschool her. And a lot of those things were online tools. But what I realized when we started traveling internationally, one, I realized that homeschool allowed for the flexibility to be able to travel whenever we wanted to because I wasn't on the school schedule. I didn't have to wait until Christmas break to go somewhere internationally. I didn't have to wait till spring break. What I would start doing is when we would travel places, I would take advantage of being in that actual location to incorporate different lessons. When we went to Paris, we would study the Eiffel Tower, the history of the Eiffel Tower. When was it built? When we were in Paris, we did the Black in Paris tour, which was really wonderful because I tried to show her reflections of herself and where other Black people have made an impact on the culture wherever we go, which in, which in most cases, usually we have made some sort of, of positive impact on the culture in some sort of way. So we did the Black in Paris tour, and that was very interesting, learning about Afro-American history in particular, Josephine Baker. And I found that wherever we go, we can always do really cool, interesting school lessons and incorporate that into the learning. I mean, it's one thing to read about the Pantheon, but it's another thing to see it in person, touch it, to walk inside of it. And I I, oftentimes what I will do is I'll ask my daughter, uh, our Mondays are usually our planning day where we kind of set the pace and the momentum for the week. And I'll ask her, what is it that you want to learn? about this week? What do you want to learn about life? What what are you curious about? And we base her her lessons, what she's feeling for the moment. And I know that's very unorthodox, but I find that she learns better that way. I remember one one time in particular when we were in Rome and she's like, Mom, I really want to know why are there so many Egyptian obelisks all over Rome in the diff- in the various piazzas. I said, you know what? That's a really great question. Let's find that out. And so usually based on her natural curiosity, we can usually incorporate many different lessons. We can, based off of that one question of why are there so many different obliques, it led us down a path where we talked about history. There was a love, an ancient love story involved we ended up having to go to the the Vatican Museum, which led to conversations about religion, politics, power, and mathematics based off of that one question. And so I love world schooling because I feel she's able to really get a, a, a well-rounded education and that the lessons that she's learning will really stick with her for the rest of her life. And it's just really wonderful to see how she's unfolding as a a young woman based off of this style of of teaching. And I mean, and and the great thing about it is there, again, I'm not the only one doing this. A lot of times you can connect with other nomadic families or other families who are are world schooling their kids and, and meet for socialization. We do cooking classes 
So wherever we go, we end up doing cooking classes to learn how to cook the local cuisine. We do art classes. A matter of fact, I have a paint and sip art therapy class that I enrolled us in for next week. We are always experimenting. We are always learning. And I think what World School has taught me is one, first of all, that I end up learning based off of her natural curiosity. There's a lot of things that I have learned simply because of her. And then two, it's it's opened my mind and broadened my uh, perspective as to what learning actually is. Because everything is a moment for learning. And learning doesn't have to be confined to a classroom or to a book because not everyone learns the same way. And I think the goal of education, when you look at education and what the definition of that is and and learning is, is did you get the lesson? I think one of the, the questions that I often get asked by parents who come to me about world schooling concept is, well, how many hours do you spend teaching? And that's because their their mind is very linear when it comes to the concept of learning because they're used to being in the classroom and they're used to being lectured to. For me, learning is not about lecturing. It's about, did you understand the concept? If we are having a homeschool lesson and she understands and grasps the concept of whatever it is that we're talking about in two hours, then that lesson is over. If she got the concept in 45 minutes, then she got it, she understood it, and we're going to move on to another lesson. For me, it's all about what did you learn? Did you retain the information? How did it change you as a person? And how do you feel you can take that information and transmute that information into something that's going to be tangible or if it's going to to enhance, be something that you can utilize to enhance your life and your experience as a human being on the planet. For me, that is what education is and that's what learning is. And that's what our world school experience is centered around. In season two, episode eight, Deborah shares her experience mothering abroad in Venezuela and Ecuador. She also shared how she's preparing her third culture kids for college. I think raising my children abroad was the best decision I I made for them. My only regret is that they weren't able to grow up um, immediate family or extended immediate uncles, cousins, all of that, because I had that experience where I grew up with my cousins, like we were siblings. So as a nuclear family, I think it, it forced us to be much closer, but I wish that they also had those links as well, where they feel like their cousins have a really good understanding of what they're going through or that they have inside jokes, things that they lived through together or memories that they, they could have had together. But other than that, the fact that they're bilingual, and we were fortunate to to be able to put them in, in an international school, which opens a lot of doors for them as, as well. They have adjusted really well. I think that by virtue of changing and not that much, I know that some expat kids will change posts every two to three years. So they, in that sense, they, they feel grounded in those in the two countries in Venezuela and and in Ecuador more so my daughter because when she left Venezuela she was a teenager so she 
is still in touch with those friends and they have a, a camaraderie that, again, I think they'll have forever, those experiences, those memories. And then for her to pretty much do her high school in Ecuador. And that, again, gave her a new kind of group of, of friends that that hopefully yeah, she'll have forever as well. But for my son, I'm very aware that he is a black boy. <laughs> and I'm sure he is as well. But I, it's funny, it, it almost feels like it's something that could be quote unquote forgotten. Because he is in that international school. And there is this sense of openness, because I think that's a very surface type of observation. He still is the only black boy in most spaces. And I don't know if it's with everything that's going on within the US with Black Lives Matter with Trayvon Martin, like all those things that happen in the news and seeing young black boys killed for being young black boys. I think that heightened my um, awareness because I always thought if we were in the US, what would I do? Would I be comfortable letting him go out every time he he went to the store? <laughs> would I would I be worried? I think I would. I absolutely think I would because when I see the images, when I see the pictures of these young black boys, I see my son. It's that's him. He he loves to wear his hoodies. That's that's just what they which is very normal. And I always think about how odd to see those similarities, even though we're not in the US. So they somehow, and I don't know if it's through me, I think partly through me, but I think a lot of it too having to do with American entertainment that is so prevalent and just everywhere you go, everywhere you turn, that they do kind of embody this Americanness as well, even though they have not lived there for so long and have spent the majority of their childhood in Latin America. But I'm grateful actually for that. I'm grateful that he is in a space, although again, I'm not naive enough to think, oh, everybody around him accepts him for who he is. I also know that we're fortunate to not be in a very violent culture. There's very little gun violence, police officers that don't even have guns. <laughs> and another thing, school shootings. I'm not saying it could never happen, but it's just not something that's in the forefront of my mind, which I think it would be if I were in the US. So for my daughter, as a black girl, as a black young woman, I do think like being an adolescent and being in a predominantly not black space, what I what I think that impacts is your self-confidence. The images of beauty that you're getting don't look like you which it happens everywhere, right? It's not just outside of the US. But I think when I come back to the US, I, I see a lot more effort being made, a lot more progress. You go into stores now and you see a lot of diversity in the pictures and in the models and things, which, which is great. That's not yet really happening in Latin America, definitely not in Ecuador. That's one thing I don't think I ever figured out how to really fix. And maybe there is no fix for it. It's more just reminding her that she's beautiful, not beautiful for a black girl or whatever. There's nothing to qualify. She's just a a beautiful person, but that knowing that has to come with from within. I think that that because of my own wellness journey, that is not only helped me to be mindful of their individual experiences, but also just knowing that they have to be reminded that so many things that they worry about or that they're doubtful about 
that that shift comes from within. I can't convince them and, and their friends can't convince them. They just have to get to a place where they're confident in who they are and, and the value that they they bring to those around them. So that I think was some, and again, it's not, there's no fix to it. She just, there was nobody who looked like her. And when it came to dating and all of that, I think that also, that also can impact because it just, you're the only one, (laughs) you're the only one. So you're, you're always kind of looked at as an outsider to an extent. And I feel like that would have happened even if, if she were Ecuadorian but she would be the only black girl. And so there's always this sort of a little bit of curiosity. What's that like? And let me look at your skin. And I I get that. I get that as an adult, but I think as an adult, I can maneuver (laughs) those situations a little bit better. Mm -hmm. I'm confident enough in myself to kind of convey to somebody like, no, you cannot touch me. No, you cannot touch my hair. No, I'm not a zoo animal. But for teenagers, it's a little bit tougher. Now that she's in university in the US, that has been another shift. And and this time, this is a shift she's sort of doing on her own. Of course, she has me for support and she can ask me questions. But even her experience right now, I don't know it. I don't quite understand it. Because from the age of three, I was in the US. So I grew up with my American friends. That's why I feel American too. Where she doesn't, she I can identify because again, the entertainment she watches, the movies, her accent, she can kind of relate. But a, a while ago, I asked her when somebody says, "What are you?" or "Where are you from?" kind of thing, because that is for us such a loaded question. What do you say? And she said, "Well, I just say I'm black." And I said, "Well, what if somebody thinks you're African American?" And she said, "I correct them. I I can't." identify as an African-American. And I feel like it would be unfair for me to, to, even though from what they see and the way that I talk, they may assume it. I I think it's important that they know that I'm not because there are so many experiences and just even the culture, I don't understand. And she doesn't. (laughs) And I think little by little, I realized that as well. Um, There are a lot of nuances to, to growing up as a black person in the United States and she didn't have the, that experience and she if for her to pretend yeah i agree with her i said and i thought that that was very wise um for her to to be so self-aware and to know that it would be very dishonest even though she could pass i know at her age at 19 years old she's still trying to figure out like what's her cultural identity really she she identifies with with the haitian culture absolutely she understands a lot more about it but she also understands a lot about ecuadorian culture about venezuelan culture her accent which is great in some respects i think the ability to adapt that way but you also need to be grounded for me, I've always been grounded in my Haitian culture and I don't, she hasn't had enough of any to feel grounded in one yet. I hope that either one day she does <laughs> feel that or she creates her own sense of identity and sense of culture, which will probably be a hodgepodge of all the cultures that she's been exposed to as a child. Deborah's children, I think it's safe to say, are third culture kids. And I was intrigued to learn more about how Deborah and her husband were preparing their children to go to college. I, I was able to help a lot because I went through it and this, the process hasn't changed a whole lot. I think what's mainly different about the 
whole college application process now is that a lot of it is online. A lot of it is electronic, which is great. You're not mailing things and waiting for letters in the mail as before. But for them, my daughter was very convinced from, I would say, probably ninth grade that she was going to the U.S. This French system prepares you for French university. And so I thought, especially because all of her close friends were were going to French university and in France, that 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 was a given. But she kept saying like, no, I don't want to go. I don't want to go to France. I don't want to go to university in France. I think this came from the the entertainment influence again, like the American movies about the college experience. I don't see that with any other culture. I don't see movies (laughs) about the French college experience or even like the Japanese, you know, any, any other countries really sell that. And I know that it's a lot of good marketing, but it works. (laughs) It works. So for her, she was just determined. So up until probably her junior year, that's when I started saying, okay, well now we got to think of the SATs or the ACTs and then start that process because we were on our own being in a French school, their, their structure is set up to navigate you through the college application process for France, nowhere else. But at the same time, the diploma that you get, the high school diploma from the French system is recognized internationally, which is, which is I think wonderful. So we got her into SAT prep because it's a very different testing mentality (laughs) that she was not at all familiar with. And I, again, am very lucky that Ecuador has all those resources where you can take an SAT prep class. You could take the SAT. They have official testing sites in Quito. Once we finish the prep and then signing up for for the testing date, and then waiting for your scores back, which again, great that now it doesn't, you don't have to wait for it in the mail. You get an email with your score and then choosing which schools to apply to. I actually nudged her to go to Florida. It just, it always feels like a, a home to us. If for some reason had to move back to the, to the U.S. immediately, that's where I would go. So we looked at universities in Florida, did the whole application process. Now there's like the common application, which didn't exist when I was applying, which is helpful, which means you only have to do one essay and you can send it off to all the universities who use that system. One of the many advantages, again, of the French system in terms of writing and those types of things, those skills are are valued a lot in, in that system. So she did pretty well in preparing her application and getting things done on time. And then there was the, the piece of translation, which the grading system is different for France. So all her transcripts had to be evaluated and there are different companies that are accredited to do that. So that piece too, that was new to me as well, but I I kind of helped navigate that with her as well. My son too, he's in the ninth grade and he has said many times, I'm going to the US. I don't know if it's the influence of the older sibling or again, the the marketing of, oh yes, let's go have the the college experience that we've seen um, in so many movies and series. But I, I hope that he broadens his horizons because to me, again, that diploma that opens so many doors, not just for the U.S., you could go pretty much anywhere. You could go to Canada. You could go to, there's there's just so many other places that you could potentially study. And I think in the next three years, we'll, we'll see if, if he changes his mind. But for now, he too has the determination of like that U.S. college experience, which is, it is lovely. 
I had it, although mine was not like what we see in the movies. And I think my daughter is seeing <laughs> the same thing, like her experience does not mirror what we see in the movies. But also, I think the resources that go into universities in the US is pretty incredible and the structure that exists. And I think, again, if you go through that door to then open so many other doors. So I support that decision for them if that's what they want. But I also encourage them to look beyond that. Deborah and I had a really interesting conversation about how her views of womanhood and motherhood have kind of been influenced by her time abroad. As Americans, we value people doing it all, especially women. We applaud when we see a woman, a single mom who's taking care of her kids, working a full-time job, has a side hustle, and maybe meal preps for the week. And it's like, I see that. And my reaction is sadness because I see that as somebody who's alone and we shouldn't have to be alone. We we're not set up for that. We are meant to live as communities. We see that with early versions of tribal societies and things like that, where everybody has their role and everybody helps each other. Now, obviously now I, I also value I don't want to say rewarding, but if somebody does work, they should be paid for it. I'm not expecting um, people to volunteer to help me do everything that I need to do. And once I was in cultures where that was the norm, that you had somebody who came in and cleaned for you. You had somebody who cooked for you. You you had, sometimes you had a, a driver. And these were all forms of help that were not seen as luxuries. They weren't paying for that. That sort of support didn't mean you were a millionaire. It just, that was what middle-class families do in order to be able to enjoy time together. Because if you're having to do everything, of course, you're exhausted. You're not going to come home at night and spend an hour just talking with your family, with your kids, with your spouse, because you're exhausted. But the more that I had that sort of help, the more I think that I was comfortable accepting like that was the norm (laughs) because I saw such a benefit with how I felt when I was with my children or with my spouse, that I wasn't stressed about, oh, I have to get back now because I got to start dinner, or I got to get back now because I have laundry to do. And these are such very basic things that I think in American culture, we've gotten to see them. Of course, you should do these things yourself. And I I challenge that now. I say, but why? (laughs) Like, why should you, if you want to, if you can do those things yet still have time to um, catch up your with your mom on the phone for an hour without feeling pulled in five directions and without feeling stressed, then all then of course do it. But in my case, and I know in the case of a lot of people, you're not able to do everything and enjoy it because that's I think the other piece. Physically, yes, we can. Physically, if when I had to, I had about a, a few months of that where I was alone. My husband had already moved um, to Venezuela and I was with the two kids. I I look at that time as survival mode. I don't know if I had any good conversations with anybody because it was get up in the morning in time to get the kids ready for school, drop them off at school, then go to work, be at work all day, and then go back, pick them up from school, get home, order food because literally 6.30, 7 p.m. at night, like I'm not going to start a meal and 
order food, get them fed, bathed, put to bed, and then I'm out. And then I'm just like, I'm exhausted. There's nothing else for me to do. So, but that was me. And so once I was in Venezuela and then through my time now in, in Ecuador, realizing that it's not viewed the same. I mean, I remember even telling friends, my American friends that, yeah, I have someone helping me now. And they're like, oh, well, now you have help. <laughs> and now, oh, now, you, oh, do you have a butler? It, it was like a joke. And then it kind of made me self-conscious about telling people there are times when I, I'm, I'm out somewhere and just, um, especially when the kids were younger and somebody says, oh, where are the kids? They were with and I start saying things like my person, <laughs> my person, because I didn't feel comfortable saying with the nanny. I didn't feel comfortable saying with the woman who who works for us. And and I didn't want to be disingenuous and say, oh, they're with a family member. So it's just like my person, you know, I have a person who helps support the household. So I thought of all these strange ways to describe what is perfectly normal in other cultures, right? It's perfectly normal to have someone helping you with your children, someone helping you keep your house clean. And the other side of that too is we also see people who work in that industry uh, a different way in the US. Like we see them as, oh, they're they're just doing that because that they have no choice. They must not have language skills. They must not um, have their education. There's all these assumptions about people in the service industry. Whereas in other cultures, it's not. The, that's what they do. People will work 30 years in the service industry, put their kids through school, all of it, will travel, will live a full life working in that industry. And it's more about the stability. If they're a good employee, it's not about ascending. I think because we get so caught up and like, you're only doing well is if you're pr being promoted, if you're moving up in some way, where in the service industry, a lot of times it's not about that. It's just, I've been working at this restaurant for 10 years. I've been, you know, working with this family for 15 years. And that's perfectly normalized in other cultures. And it's not in the US. And, and I think it causes a lot of problems. I think we don't realize that when we're looking at mental health in the US, addictions and, and all those other things that are very pervasive, Whereas in these, these same cultures that I'm thinking of, where this is normalized, having the support is normalized, you don't see that as much. Of course it exists, but you don't see it as prevalent as you see it in American society. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of Flourish in the Foreign. If you enjoyed this episode of Flourish in the Foreign, please consider supporting Flourish in the Foreign by going to buymeacoffee.com slash flourishforeign and buying me a coffee or purchasing an item off our podcast wish list. Be sure to rate and review the podcast and make sure that you're subscribed. You're following the podcast across all social media platforms at Flourish Foreign. And of course, let me know what you thought about this episode by responding to any one of my emails or sliding in my DMs. So what is Move Abroad with Intention course? Well, there are two versions of the course. There is a self-study course and there is a live version course, okay? The self-study course is a five-week self-study course with pre-recorded material and curriculum that you'll have access immediately. So once you purchase the course, you have that material and you will be walked through crafting your unique vision of a life well-lived abroad to country selection, to employment and money management, preparing to leave 
arriving and landing, making community, and preparing to stay long-term and repatriating. It is an all-encompassing five-week course with a complimentary move abroad intention guide, which I believe is just essential and is really foundational of the course. Now, if you're interested in the live version of the Move Abroad Intention course, listen up. So the live version of this course is not available year round. It will only be available certain times of the year. And if you're interested in it, I highly suggest you be signed up for the Flourish the Foreign newsletter because that's when I will be letting everyone know when the live course is available for sign up. So the difference between the self-course and the live course is that this is a live course, right? It is going to be with me. It is five weeks of live discussion with me and the rest of the cohort. You still have access to the pre-recorded curriculum. You would still have access to the community. So you get to make friends and do all those things. And of course, you'll still be invited to the monthly office hours. The major difference is that if you are looking for some accountability, And if you want to chat with me live on a weekly basis for five weeks, this is the version for you. The truth is, is that moving abroad is a hassle. It just is. I know that a lot of people don't want to hear that, but I know that a lot of people, maybe you included, also have a deep fear of failing abroad, meaning you move abroad, you hate it, you don't make friends, you go broke, you have to come home with your tail between your legs. And moving abroad with intention course will help you build that foundation for a sustainable move abroad. At the end of this course, if you do the homework, you have a thick binder of research uniquely crafted for you and your life that will be the guiding star for you in this move abroad. Now, if this sounds like something you're interested in, I encourage you to sign up for Move Abroad with Intention course, either self-study or live version now. I hope to see you soon. As always, big thanks to Zach Higgs, who produced the music of this podcast. And remember, it is not about moving abroad and it's not about being abroad. It's about flourishing abroad. So go abroad and cultivate a life well lived. See you next time. Bye. On the next episode of Flourish in the Foreign. I decided to do something that was so non-traditional. There's no manual for it. There's no book. There's no right or wrong way to do it. And As we go along, we find out what is okay for our family and it doesn't really matter what other people have to say about that.